And I'm excited for today. I've come back. I had the privilege last week of just not preaching and going and being a part of the celebration of the church I grew up in. I was with Jenny, who is a part of that story with me. But 40-year celebrations of a church that I did 20 years of my life in. 20 years. I've said it many times, and I had a privilege of speaking there. But, but in, a, in a world where the narrative, when church comes up, is hashtag church hurt. And everyone has a church hurt story, and that gets celebrated and told. And everyone tells their church. My story is different, if I'm being honest. It, there are opportunities to tell those stories. Sure, 20 years is a long time. It's a whole lot of church, a whole lot of people, and a whole lot of me growing up. But, but my 20 years from 14 to 33 were a testament of being held in the church. When I wanted to run, I got held. When I was exposed, I got held. When I was the 14-year-old the who didn't have a clue, I got held in a youth group and taught how to pray. It was the last thing that I thought I would learn at 14. Like, God, I want to be out there with my mates, but I got taught how to pray. 19, and challenges in my life, I got taught that community is real. And, and by life groups and people in my life and people involved. And I'm so grateful for that story. And so part of even the series that we're processing and we're looking at simply this, we the church, is because I honestly believe there's something on of our, on in, something of. It's that tough two-letter word that we always just struggle with. Something of an identity crisis in the church. Years ago, we got invited into a home, and it was more of a desperate cry for help. But I was sitting there in this home where there was chaos. Things had been thrown across that same room we were sitting in, both words and knives and forks. There were um, challenges in the marriage. There was chaos in the parenting and child situation. The dog looked like it ruled the house. There was just absolute chaos. But I'm sitting there listening to his side of the story and her side of the story, at one point thinking, God, what am I doing here? At the next point, I'm staring and listening because I really do listen. But then I noticed a massive print that many people have in their home because it's available at every Mr. Price. But it's this print. Maybe we can put it on the wall. In this house, we do real. We do mistakes. We do I'm sorry. We do second chances. We do fun. We do forgiveness. We do hugs. We do loud. We do family. We do love. I'm sitting listening to absolute chaos and going, there's a problem with what's on the wall and what's in the house. There's a problem. And I think sometimes what's on the walls of the church and both inside and outside sometimes doesn't relate to the mission, the mandate, and the identity crisis that's in the church. The church has become Many different things, a religious habit for some, a preaching center, a place to top up my life as part of a spiritual sojourn journey, then that one's helpful for me in this season. A self-centered, focused, self-focused journey, a place maybe to find a spouse. Yeah, that's a real thing. Lots of testimonies in the life of the church. The amazing thing about Impele's story about that lady sponsoring a man from a men's camp is the man she sponsored, they ended up getting married. No, that's not true. <laughs> It's not even remotely true. You shouldn't believe everything the preacher says. <laughs> oh, sorry. I'm feeling naughty this morning. <laughs> I just, I don't know what made me say that. <laughs> would have been a great story, though. Let's be honest. That one would preach. But, um, but, I, but we've been going to and referencing this Acts 2 scripture where there's this people who get filled with the Spirit of God. They get called out. They get saved. And then they devote themselves to 
the word, to preaching, to teaching, to gathering. And what flows is just irrational generosity. People giving of things they have to others who don't have because they're in each other's lives and they know about it. They're in each other's lives in prayer. They're gathering and what's happening in the midst of that is not some missional program, go and save the world, but people are getting added daily because it's the church. Without an identity crisis, the church remembering that we aren't just a people who gather so that we get a prep up on Sunday. We are people on a mission. It's a messy building project. If you're expecting to walk into the church and find everyone perfectly built and all their walls are at the right angle, sorry, I'm in a building project, so most of my analogies will be building projects right now. But the walls are at the wrong angles and the levels aren't right. And you look and say, something's a bit squiff there. You're probably right because we're a messy building project. And until Jesus returns, we'll continue to be a building project. I hope you're okay with that. Because if you're not okay with that, you're probably going to struggle with the church. The church isn't the finished product. It's never going to be until Jesus returns. In the church, there are going to be some things that need to be fixed, some things that need to be uprooted, some foundations that need to be established again on the cornerstone. And it's an ongoing process until Christ returns. What is the ultimate vision of church? Have you ever asked, you ever stopped, you're like, well, it's grace for me. Well, that's wonderful, but it's, is it good Sundays? Is it kind of well-educated believers who know a lot about God? No, we know that's not the mission. And as we navigate this, this, this kind of journey of we, the church, reminding ourselves of our identity, I just want to re-speak what's on the wall a little bit. And it's literally on the wall. Reach far, raise up, release wide. We put it on the wall. I imagine people walk in, the, in this place sometimes and go, what is that? It's on the wall. No one's reaching for me. I came for coffee. No one came across the room to me. Raise up. What, well, I'm, I'm, on, I'm at the bottom. And maybe, I hope that hasn't been your experience, but I, but I want to remind us today something of this, and I don't want to go far past the first point. But to help us, I actually got a Facebook memory that popped up this week. When you're getting a little older, you start realizing, like Mark, who told me the same story this morning, or three stories. You get a little older, it's okay, it doesn't matter, it happens. Just love him, Debs. And, um, but we've got a, a photo. Do we have those photos, Rue? Um, this is eight years ago. This was the team who went out to plant a church in Milliton School Hall. And, um, and, and there's some beautiful people here. We've got a couple other photos, maybe you can pop them up. There's Brett and Shelley on the far side now. There's Gabriel. He's looking a little chunkier these days on Severica, I'm just going to say. But, but it was the people who were saying we were convenient. We were one meeting on a Sunday morning. We were probably less people than we were here. But we so believed that God wanted to reach the lost, the broken, that we went on a mission. We sent some of the best people in. On the first week of the church launch, row two, three, and four disappeared from the church. It was my worst Sunday. Like They were just gone. Like Where they gone? Has the rapture happened? No, we planted a church. But it's why, because we know and we believe the mission and the mandate of the church and God established in us something of a vision and a focus because I think too much of the church, when we don't have an outward focus and we don't realize that we're just a building project on a mission, that we're so often and we're too often waiting to be the finished product before we get on with the project. No, if you wait for your house to be the finished product right now, we have a wall of shut supply down the middle of our house. We're living in one half of our house, but it's still our house. 
If we're not going to do family and we're not going to do mission and we're not going to carry on with life and we're not going to educate our kids and we're just going to wait for the house to be right, something's wrong. And I feel like in the church, there's this waiting for the house to be perfect rather than getting on with the mission and realizing the people that are still to come are going to make that house perfect. God's grace and glory. So I want to just touch on that today and something of the experience of the church because when I look at it and I look at the church broad, and I understand, and I, there comes the rain. I, I, I'm reminded of that story of Peter fishing, and they, they're chucking their nets down, and Jesus comes to him and says, chuck your nets on the other side. A simple command, one that didn't make sense. Like, fish can swim anywhere, Jesus. <laughs> what are we doing now? But there's this understanding that maybe just trusting Jesus for a blue ocean strategy and other side understanding rather than fishing in the pond of believers I'm telling you now, it is a scary day when you wake up and you realize people don't wake up on Sundays and go, I need to go to church. Let me just shatter your minds. There are people in this world who don't wake up on Sundays and go, I must go to church. They just don't. It's not even in the top hundred of their things to do on a Sunday morning. It used to be in the 90s because church was the only thing open. On a Sunday. Some of you don't remember. You could literally only get church and, and Kentucky Fried Chicken on a Sundays. And maybe a Sunday Tribune. That was all that was available to you on a Sunday. Yo, hello. But nowadays, it's different. And so if the church's strategy, we're just going to wait for people to wake up on Sundays and go, I need to go to church. I'm telling you, we're missing so much. And it's like the word of God saying, cost your nets on the other side. And I'm speaking to us because maybe you're sitting, you're saying, but, uh, but Mark, that's your job. You're the pastor. No, we the church. We the church. This guy leading the meeting, he's a lawyer. Shh, it's okay. Pray for him. That's what I was saying. No, but, but, but and, and, and there's people with businesses and running businesses because we the church together see the mission of God come. And I just want to simply speak this morning about a church that reaches. Because I want to be a church that reaches far. I want to be a, a part of a church because I realized what I loved about the church that I was a part of before this. And here's the funny thing. I've been in church for 30 years. I've only ever been in two churches. One of them, I was the naughty 14-year-old, the very naughty 19-year-old, the dodgy deacon. Eventually, they made me a leader. And then I came here. This is my second church. So if you're going to come speak to me about experience and how to leave a church, I'm not very experienced in that regard. But what captivated about, about that community was a passion. The first memory, I went to youth, and the next week they said, come to youth, but come a little earlier. No one told me what, why I was coming earlier. So I arrived a bit earlier. We got in like an old bus and went down to the beachfront. And I realized, oh, I've been duped. Because we went down to the amphitheater near the old aquarium in Durban. Somehow brought out a jambi. We started singing songs while people were just going for their Friday afternoon walk. And then someone started preaching the gospel. But you know what? There are people I saw last weekend who got saved because of that. Their lives changed because of that. Because the people were prepared to put their lives out there, be a part of a reaching story. And too much of the church these days are too scared even to invite someone to church because what if I offend them? We're so sensitive to so many things. If I think we did that these days, it is offensive. Someone's going to have a problem with it. And you're probably going to end up on the table view neighbor's Facebook page. An auspicious page. 
Anyway, I really got to get to the Bible today because I'm feeling naughty. So we're going to go speak and look at John chapter 4. And Jesus, understand this, he's, he's taken these disciples, he's handpicked a totally motley crew. He, he, he put a group of 12 guys together who together on their own without Jesus would have been absolute chaos. They would have ripped each other apart. They were from different spectrums of political fields. They were from different spectrums of life and belief systems. And Jesus calls them to be disciples and to follow him. And he takes them on a journey. And part of the journey is he's going, and he's, he's going on a journey to Judea. He's on his journey. He has to enter Samaria. Now, Jews did not enter Samaria. There was this unspoken rule that had been around for years and years and years because Samarians and the Jewish people hated each other. So what was accepted that if you were going to go that route, you would take a 70-mile detour just to avoid that place. But Jesus chose something different. He wanted to go through Samaria. And he ended up at a place called Sychar where he met a lady at a well. And we've preached this story a lot, but I want to take us back there and remind us just four simple things about the journey. And the first point is this. Your journey is never about a place. It's always about people. It's never about a place. And in an era of time where mankind has never had more ability to travel the world, be a part of different stories, taste different cultures, and that in itself has become something of an idol, I'm telling you, God's got to remind us that in, it's never about a place. It's always about people when it comes to the gospel and the things of God. It starts like this, John chapter 4, verse 1. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining um, and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. Well, the truth is he didn't have to go through Samaria. That's the truth. He could have taken the detour that everyone else at the time would have taken. But Jesus chose to go through Samaria. Jesus chose to lead his disciples. And as he entered there, I would imagine disciples going, I mean, Judas is there. I'm not going to sell any tickets to this show. They didn't even like us. Peter's there going, no fish here. All these guys processing, going, Jesus, are you crazy? I mean, are you crazy? And yet Jesus takes them on a route, a, a, a uncomfortable route, a, a route that is undesirable to almost everyone else in their community. Why do I say that? Because maybe, just maybe, there's something about your route or the place you find yourself in that is undesirable right now. Maybe you think it's undesirable to be in South Africa right now. Maybe you think your job or place of work is undesirable to you. It's a place of exposure, a place where there might be an enemy. Maybe it's a place where others are choosing different routes and everyone seems to be choosing a different route. And yet Jesus says, I've got this route for you. What if God's in the story? What if God is the God of heaven and earth? who knows it all and is beyond it all and is leading your life just so that one life might get saved? What if? What if we were to change our mindsets and attitudes about what is desirable and undesirable and align ourselves with God and find peace in that journey to be able to hear God on a different level? I want to carry on with the story and purely throw that challenge that sometimes it could just be that that. I'm just not in the right place at the right time, or am I perfectly placed? Where it's undesirable for my emotions, undesirable for my life plan, undesirable for my finances, and yet Jesus chose the hardest path to lead his disciples on to teach them something. 
because he needed them to change the world. But he needed the gospel deep in their hearts. And I'm telling you, unless the gospel's deep in our hearts, we'll only have good meetings on a Sunday, but we won't change the world. Is that right? You with me? Point number two, simply this, your beginning might be someone else's end. They're just starting their journey, and they're starting the journey. They get to choose their route. Jesus chooses Samaria. I realized in life, life's happening quickly. I went back to this church that I grew up. They were little kids that were this big. Now they're this big. And, and, and they're still trying to do to me what they did to me 10 years ago. I'm like, if you do that, you're going to break me. As this one kid who now plays under 21 rugby for Natal came up and started to tackle me. And I'm like, you're a bit bigger now. Doesn't work. You realize life's going fast. The reason I said is I realize, and I think in these terms, my 14-year-old son who's turning 15, I really only have three more summers with him in my home as son. He'll be a man. He must go. He must grow. He must go on a journey. But time happens quickly, and sometimes we're bad at taking moments, enjoying moments, and maximizing the moments. So Jesus takes a moment. He chooses this path that was undesirable. He takes his boys with them. Come, boys, we're going this way. They know they're going to be exposed, and they continue the journey. Verse 4. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Sychar. Names are important in the Bible. Names are people, they're important in the Bible. But names of places are also important. Sikha literally means end. But it wasn't the end for Jesus. It wasn't the end for the disciples. Their story was just starting. It was the end for someone that Jesus would meet, a woman he would meet at the well. It was the end of her story. It carries on, and I want to just read a little bit further. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water... Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. He'd chosen this path for a reason. He'd gone on a different This is Jesus. He knew everything. He understood everything. He understood geography and he understood politics. And he knew that they shouldn't be there if he submitted himself to all those things. And yet he chose to go that route. And he landed in a place called Sikha, the end, where he meets at noon a woman who should not be at a well at noon. Here's what you got to know about the culture. No one went to the well at noon. We're not talking about the Woolworth, the, what do you call it, the water well at West Coast Village. You can go get water there at noon. It's convenient. They've got taps that will open up. But at these times, when the heat would be burning down, only someone who was ostracized from a community, only someone who had no place in the community, only someone who would have feared the conversations around the water well would go on their own at noon, exposed as a single woman to a well at noon. Only that person. And Jesus is there, his disciples have gone off to Burger King, he's at the well, and he's waiting. He's exhausted, the Bible's honest, the Bible says he's exhausted from the travel. But he encounters a woman who's at her end. If you go read the whole chapter, I won't read the whole chapter this morning, he starts to speak to her. I'd encourage you to go watch the version of it on The Chosen, because I think it's beautiful. There's some license given. But he's speaking to the context, and he starts to speak to her. He's supposed to prophesy into her life. She's thinking, why are you speaking to me? She asks him, why are you speaking? I'm a Samaritan woman. Understand this. There's some barriers between us. Jesus starts to prophesy into her story at Sikha, at her end. And I'm telling you, 
your water well at the workplace that you work, that you're grumpy about because the boss didn't give you the raise he spoke about, but he didn't do it. You might just meet someone at the water well drinking a water, thinking of those things, and they're standing in front of you, and it's a moment for transformation because it's someone else's end. I have to live for people who are at their ends. I've said it a few times recently, but I've had to process as I've been in ministry a long time now. Even going back to Durban, there's some stories. When I walk in the room, they were hectic stories. I was in one room. You will never find out who this is. But I was in a marriage counseling scenario where the wife confessed to planning the husband's murder in her head. Yes, welcome to my job. You think you know what pastors do. I'm sitting there going, this is well beyond my scope of reference. This is not what I thought I signed up when I left corporate. This is not, I thought of stages, I thought of microphones, I thought of fun with friends, I thought of adventures, but not this. And then God reminds you that Jesus is the one who on the first mission trip with his boys, he takes them to an undesirable land. Why? To meet an undesirable woman who's challenged in her life. She's made bad choices through and through. She's had chaos in her world. She's now living with a man that she's not married to. Why? Because he just won't even honor her with that. She's been divorced multiple times. She is discarded at a well at midday. Jesus went to meet her at her end. And I'm just telling the gospel demands that of us. I'm not sure what gospel you signed up for. When I was 14 years old and put my hand up for Jesus, I didn't put my hand up to sit in a room with marriages that were broken. I didn't put my hand up at 14 years old to sit with people who are fighting terminal illnesses and to sit and pray and weep with families. I didn't. But I'm telling you, the minute you put your up to Jesus, you put your hand up to say, God, I will go where your heart burns for me to go. I will fight for that. And I'm telling you, it's got to tear our hearts apart. And sometimes the gospel is going to feel like you're putting your heart on the table and beating it. Why? Because they're people. There's a woman at a well at Sika. She's at her end. And it's not the pastor's job. It's your job. At the water well, in your marketing company, at the school you teach, as a civil servant, wherever you go, Sometimes undesirable to your preferences. I'm just reminding us of who we are. We're a people on a mission. We're on a journey together. We're navigating that together. And as we navigate that together, I want to just remind us one more thing. It says, verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to us, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. I preached about this two weeks ago. I cannot let it go because everywhere I see in the Bible, there's a battle against preference and prejudice. Everywhere. And I'm telling you, church, if we even want to start being the church without an identity crisis, we've got to wrestle this stuff to the ground and defeat it. She was fully aware of the prejudices that existed. First, she was a Samaritan, an enemy of the Jew. There was this pre-existing prejudice. He wouldn't have been a bad guy for having that prejudice. She's not saying, she's not saying, Jesus, you're a bad guy because you probably got this prejudice. She's just saying, this is existing. Secondly, she's a woman. And in those days, Jewish men were obligated to recite this blessing, blessing three times a day. And the blessing went like this. Thank God that I'm not a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. Three times a day, a Jewish man was prescribed to declare that as a blessing on his life. And so Jesus flips the script. 
He lowers himself. He gets over his prejudice. He says, actually, that's not in my heart. What's in my heart is for you. Living water. See, when you've been given living water, you've got to give living water away. Not prejudice. Not earthly water. Not filtered water. Not sanitized water. And not anything this world can produce. Living water. It'll never flow through pride and prejudice. Never. I meant to say preference and prejudice, but Pride and Prejudice is a good book, apparently. <laughs> and I, if, you, if, if you didn't hear me preach about that, can I ask, and I hardly ever ask the church to do this, can I ask you to listen to that preach? Because I'm telling you, the church will not move forward in the mission of God unless we allow God to deal with preference and prejudice in our hearts. It just won't move. And lastly... The disciples come back to Jesus and, and he ministers to her and he prophesies into her story and it's a long chapter and, and she's astounded. She's so astounded that she, she, she can't but go tell the story. So the disciples come back. They, they're rocking McDonald's in the one hand, Nando's in the other. They've got their favorite meals. They've been walking on the road. They pull in back and say, just then the disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked. So they're like, that's weird. We don't talk to, and we don't like Samarians. We definitely don't talk to women, especially on our own in the middle of the day, one who's been rejected by her own people. But you know what their response is? Hey, Jesus, what can we do here? How are we learning? They just go, hmm. No one asked. What do you want? Or why are you talking? They don't even ask. What do you want? They just literally don't even engage her at all. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back, verse 28, to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. It's an amazing word, and I said it in preference and prejudice, but I want to say it again. They made their way. They is a swear word in South Africa these days. Just go on a comments page on a News 24 article. They did this. They did this. Verse 31. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. All they can think about are their earthly appetites. All they can think about is they've been walking. They've been paying a price. Maybe sometimes like us at church, we're getting up early. We're serving. We're, we're sacrificing. We're, hey, God, what's in it for us? Oh, my, my, my desires. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. He's teaching them. He's saying, guys, I need you to go on a mission. You've got to know this is different. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? They're still thinking about their stomachs. They're missing the whole story. And we laugh, but the challenge is we can so easily be the same. We can. I can. I get hangry. Anyone else? Hungry, angry. Anyone else? Like, because we're human. But we aren't of this earth. It means we've got to align ourselves with Jesus. When we read his word, he's got to challenge it. Could someone have brought us food? My food, Jesus said, knowing the answer, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying? He puts it back on them says, you guys say this. Isn't still, isn't still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe. For harvest, even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. 
Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. They thinking Nando's peri-peri chicken livers. Jesus thinking eternal salvation. And I just, I read that story to you and he challenges them. He says, open your eyes and look at the fields. Here's the challenge. And if it's the only way you know how to respond tomorrow as you're driving to work, here's what I'm asking you. Open your eyes and look at the fields. And stop thinking that my building project has to be finished before I can invite anyone to my house. Because they're not coming there for your house. They're coming for the life that is inside of you. Stop thinking, what, how could I stand at a water well at my marketplace and tell anyone about Jesus? Here's how. Because it's not about you. It's never been about you. It's about Him. It's about the living water He can give. And I'm telling you, they are desperate for it. I remember a mate of mine, his name's Clifton Smithers. I joined the marketplace. He was one year ahead of me in this kind of rampant corporate environment. And, and it was work hard, play hard. And he was at the forefront of play hard. And then he came to church about two years later and got radically saved. And I went to him and I said, yeah, that's amazing. You know what he said to me? He said, why didn't you tell me? Uh, I tried, but, but you had red wine in your hand. Not a good excuse. I tried, but you were busy. Not a good excuse. There is no good excuse. There's just, you're right. Jesus challenges his disciples, says, look, everyone's saying, and you say it all the time. Harvest is coming in four months' time, but I'm telling you now, the harvest fields are ripe, and the church will be the church when we understand we're a church because we have a message, and the message is to reach. It's to take our little T-Rex arms that become self-protecting. It's me, mine. And to start reaching out to the broken. Then we become the church. Then we won't have an identity crisis. Then we won't be fighting with each other because we'll be too busy on the mission. Oh, I told you to order me Nando's number two. That won't matter when people are getting saved. Some of you look at me like, is he angry this morning? I'm not angry. I just want to tell you what gets me up in the morning. If I'm being brutally honest, I don't need to preach another sermon. I don't need to. If I'm being honest, I don't need more church services. I've probably done a couple lifetimes of church services in my life. I need to see women at the well, at Sika, at the end saved. I need to see that. That keeps me focused on Jesus. When I under, start thinking about the cost of my life, my time, my finances, my future, my whatever, all of that becomes overwhelming. And never, I start remembering the woman at the well. And she was at the end, but God moved. And I start telling stories of people in this room, people with depression, marriages that were broken and shattered with barely a heartbeat, lives that were destroyed, people who were riddled with insecurity and brokenness because of things Father said 30 years ago in this room right now. When I forget that, I forget who I am as part of the church. And we as the church have an identity crisis. But we're not going to be those people. We're going to be His people with living waters. Can you stand with me this morning?
Gabe is almost back from sabbatical, so just going to ask you, I'm going to shoot through to Century City just one more time in the season of their sabbatical, but, but I love the church. My first five preachers, I preached on the bride of Christ, the church. Eventually, Rory Dyer, my pastor and leader at the time, came to me and said, have you got anything else you can preach on? Because <laughs> I love the church. But I'm telling you, if it's just about the church and not about those who aren't here yet, we'll start taking the church for granted. We'll start seeing the flaws. We will. If we don't have the cry of the newborn believer in our midst and the mess that comes with it and the chaos and confusion that sometimes comes with it, if we don't have that, I'm telling you, we cease to be the church. But it starts with us and as individuals who gather. When it starts becoming less about us and more about the mission, his mission, the people he burns for. What if Jesus took you on a journey to Samaria, an undesirable route that exposed you and challenged you, and yet it was just one woman? What if we planted a church in Milton all eight years ago? I remember preaching on that day in the hall. I was sick. Rory dies. Father passed away the day before he was supposed to come preach, and I got up and preached. I said, if we do all of this and one person gets saved, I saw that one person yesterday. Her name is Corin Ralston. She was Fiona's mother. She is Fiona's mother. Who didn't speak to her daughter for six months after Fiona gave her life to Jesus. Thought she was mad. Then she married a redhead from church. Thought things were getting worse. Until one day we planted a church in Mill. She said, I have to go support my daughter at this event. She gave her life in the journey. She was the first person baptized in the Milton High School pool. I'll do it again. To follow Jesus, to say, I'll do it again. Yeah. I'll go through Samaria. I'll walk through undesirable routes so that one person, just one, one life will change. I trust you will too. Then we are the church. Then we won't have an identity crisis and we'll continue. But can I pray? Can I, as I hand over to Impele now, pray, Spirit of God, come. This is not a call to an environment evangelistic campaign. It's just a reminder that Jesus was always after the one. That you, Jesus, your heart for the broken never waned. You were never looking to put a movement of Sunday meetings together. That wasn't your desire. It's never been your, you were always after the person who was at the end. And maybe that person is here today. I pray, Spirit of God, come in power now and reveal Jesus now, to the marriage that is at the end, to the financial situation that is at the end, to the emotional chaos that might be at the end. Come, Spirit of God. But I pray to the heartbeat of this church that we would have your heartbeat, that you would break a heart for what breaks yours, that you would come up and stir a passion, a passion to see your name made great, to share your name, your goodness, your grace at the water wells of the city, God. Come, Jesus. Ignite your church. Have your way.